to convince someone of something which they have not yet experienced or they simply don't believe is going to happen to them is almost impossible because there's no nidus, there's no event that causes them to sit up and take notice. So I think it then falls to those of us who have been down the road more than once to take the initiative and make opportunities to have those conversations. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Welcome to part two of our War Docs interview with retired Army Colonel Dr. Evan Renz with a focus on quality and patient safety. We hope you had the chance to listen to part one of our interview where Dr. Renz talks about his deployment experiences and advances in critical care surgery and burn management. Dr. Renz completed a senior executive fellowship and earned his master's degree in public health and health policy at Harvard University. And he currently serves as a deputy to the commander for quality and safety at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. You can read his full bio on wardoxpodcast.com. You spent a pretty large chunk of your military career at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, including time as a hospital commander. What role do you see this institution playing in the past and future of military medicine? Well, uh, Brook Army Medical Center has a, a storied history with respect to its contributions to military medicine and combat casualty care, research, and probably most importantly, at least in recent history, in the training of military medical professionals who will deploy to future operations, whether that training is conducted through the ACGME pathway or the allied health programs or simply sustainment training for others who, who, who come to the campuses to, to refresh or recertify in, in their skills, which they've not practiced for a while. So as the largest and most robust military medical training and readiness platform in the military health system, there is no other place that can provide that depth and breadth of experience as the only the only level one trauma center, the only burn center, the only hyperbaric medicine service, and the only ECMO service in the DOD. I don't I don't know how any other military medical training campus can provide that level of experience. So the short answer is the opportunity for Readiness training and skill maintenance is probably the biggest contributor right now to the DOD. In 2017, after having done a decade as a med service corps officer, going to medical school, being a burn surgeon, deploying several times, you decided to obtain a master's of public health and health policy from Harvard and focused on quality, safety, and value. What role does a physician, and specifically in your case, a surgeon, play in the quality and safety culture of our healthcare system. And what does that degree give you having done it so late in your career that you may not have been able to do had it been done earlier in your career? The decision to turn to formal education at that point in my life was driven largely 
if not entirely, by what I had observed over the previous 20 years. And I think if if we're honest with ourselves and we look at the mistakes that we've all made in our practice and we look at the things we could have done better, we all want to improve the system. I had the opportunity to examine the literature and, and look at what led to leaders in quality proposing the concept of zero harm where we sought to reach a higher level of excellence in our daily care, I was committed to that endeavor. And as to how a surgeon becomes involved, I needed only look to the works and the the writings of uh, Dr. Atul Gawande, who is a prominent surgeon based out of Harvard, and his work with the book Complications or Better or any of his articles that he'd written over the past 10, 15 years. And I knew that there was so much more to be gained there. So it was a fairly simple act. I simply contacted Dr. Gwandi and asked him if he would allow me to to learn from him. And he said, well, that'd be fantastic. So he was at Harvard. And so I just went where he was and he became my faculty advisor. And I was able to not only earn the degree, but most importantly, learn from him and other faculty members what they were striving for in terms of achieving zero harm and improving healthcare, both surgically and medically across the country. So it was meant to occur at that point in my life. And frankly, I don't know that I would have been as open to the idea of learning those lessons and committing a year of my life to that study if it hadn't been for the previous 20 years. So from 2014 to 2016, you were the commander of Brook Army Medical Center, but now you are the deputy to the commander for quality and safety at Brook Army Medical Center. What did you learn from Dr. Gwanda and the other people at Harvard that now has allowed you to take that position and lead in this quality and safety initiative pathway? One of the courses that I was able to take while at Harvard was a course on meta-leadership, which was focused on leading up, down, in, and out. And it was a phenomenal learning experience. It was uh, conducted over the winter break. You had to apply to be considered for the course. You had to literally apply with a resume to be enrolled. And it was intriguing that this very intense course with multiple faculty would allow us to dig so deeply into the various aspects of leadership. And that course was incredibly valuable, emphasizing so many of the lessons that we've learned in other parts of our military careers that to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. And so the ability to come back and serve in a, a subordinate role and directly supporting the commander, whomever it might be, was just a, an opportunity that I could not pass up. It could not be a better opportunity for me to be able to apply so many of the lessons learned over a career and simply share lessons or offer recommendations to the uh, senior leaders and my colleagues on a daily basis, all focused on achieving zero harm for our patients. The military has a culture of quality and safety, and we try to empower everyone on the team. 
as you certainly know. And we've had several people who've talked about quality and safety, but few people who've really been specially trained at Harvard in quality and safety. What would you say is the biggest goal of a large medical center such as BAMC in promoting quality and safety? And what are some of the challenges that a big institution like that has to overcome? The principles that we need to use collectively to overcome the obstacles are often encapsulated in the high reliability principles. And so you hinted at one of them, which is the deference to expertise, which is the maximizing the knowledge and skill and expertise of the person or the team member most able to impact the patient's health or recovery at that time. And it is irrespective of their position or rank or specialty, but rather we need to look at who has the best uh, sight picture of what's going on with that patient at the time. And as we all know, and we practice the the bedside nurse, particularly the ICU nurse who has uh, been with that patient for an extended period of time has invaluable insights as to what's been going on. And we, we must consistently recognize that, appreciate it and leverage that the same with the RT, the same with the, um, dietitian, the the physical therapist, any team member who plays a part in that care. And and frankly, that's one of the strengths of the burn center model is it it uses an interdisciplinary teamwork approach to provide care. And I think those people who've written about this topic definitely emphasize the value in that uh, mindset. So at a place like Bamsey with the largest daily inpatient census of any hospital in the military health system, we will do well to utilize those high reliability principles and ap- apply them, whether it be preoccupation with failure or being sensitive to operations or being reluctant to simplify a problem. We, we need to look at the patient's condition and their diagnosis and our plan from all angles and cast aside ego, cast aside, um, specialty uh, bias, but simply focus on what is the best possible plan of care for that patient and implement it with the whole goal of ensuring zero harm. And if we can do that, we will make major advances in our care. So as physicians, one of the first things we do is take the Hippocratic Oath, and that is first do no harm. What advice would you give to a physician who finds himself in the unfortunate experience of having accidentally administered harm to a patient when they thought that they were providing them with benefit? The one uh, high reliability principle that I did not mention was the one entitled commitment to resilience. And an organization, in order to be ultimately effective and successful, must have that commitment to resilience for its staff. And along with that goes the concept of a just culture, a just culture of safety. And we will not be able to move forward as an organization, as a profession, if we are not able to candidly, frankly, openly, honestly, and in a timely manner, talk among members of the healthcare team about mistakes that we know happen, we know will happen, that were not intentional, and yet they caused in some cases, devastating outcomes to include even death. And I absolutely believe that the best approach to that is one of a direct nature where 
professionals, colleagues take the time to talk to their peers who have experienced that type of a situation and, and just talk through it. And if that means sharing their own personal stories about tragedy and mistakes made and regret in a frank and open way, then, then so be it. But I have yet to meet a healthcare provider, a professional, a surgeon, an intensivist, an anesthesiologist who hasn't made at least one error that they uh, will regret their and have regretted their entire career due to no intention on their part, but simply either made a mistake or was part of, of a process where an unfortunate outcome occurred. There's no easy way, but I think there is a direct and effective way, which is to have the difficult conversations and make the focus not be one of blame and embarrassment and criticism, but rather one of compassion and a shared goal of learning from that event to ensure that it never happens again to someone else. And I will say that in the many cases that I have been part of, being open and honest with the patient and or their family is part of that process. And I think that we are moving more and more towards that where we can admit our our frailties up front and um, and acknowledge them. And I think that's that's part of the process. But that yeah. does take time. In my experience, I found that people who have made mistakes that was potentially preventable, a lot of times they, they're the ones that can buy into this quality and safety culture and doing team steps and making sure that you know we, we do things right every time. What do you tell those younger physicians who may not have had that big mistake happen, who come out of training, invincible, bulletproof, and they just don't want to get on board with this quality and safety stuff. That's something that the nurses do, not doctors. How do you deal with them? I wish that there was an easy answer to your question because you being a strong supporter of Team Steps during your entire career and and recognizing its value, know that to convince someone of something which they have not yet experienced or they simply don't believe is going to happen to them is almost impossible because there's no nidus, there's no event that causes them to sit up and take notice. So I think it then falls to those of us who have been down the road more than once to take the initiative and make opportunities to have those conversations and share lessons, encourage them to read the books. And that pulled me right back to uh, Atul Gawande. That was the nidus for his books. His book, Complications, talks about those very points that he wrote about the cases because he was trying to share that reality was so many people, and he, he felt that writing about it would be the best medium to, to do that. So whether it's capture them in print and put them out in books or encourage people to read the books or lecture about the books, I think all those things can work. But I think at some point there has to be a heart-to-heart connectivity, and we do really try as an organization to use our Sentinel events and the subsequent root cause analyses process to create the environment for those conversations. And so it's not one about blame. It's not one about trying to assign blame to an individual, but rather let's talk about what happened and let's look at how we can prevent this from happening in the future. And I really do believe that our system is committed to that process and 
I fully acknowledge, though, it, it's hard to convince people of that if they're on the hurting end of the process. When a large hospital like Bamsey has an event occur where you identify that there is a problem or system that needs to be changed within the process, what exactly is the process that you think would be best to have in a large hospital like that to make the necessary change, prevent that from happening to the next patient? I do believe that the services and, and now the Defense Health Agency has the right idea. The, the system they have in place to both report and clarify the problems as soon as they occur as possible and to then investigate them and do a comprehensive systematic analysis, which is the, the long description of the process, is the way to go about it. And even though department and service leaders will at times feel that burden of dedicating their personnel to that process and the, and the hours it takes to do it, almost universally at the end of it, the members of that team that sat and analyzed a, a, a mistake or an error or a death walk away believing that that was incredibly worthwhile, it was done for the right reason, and that it will help make the system better. The piece that we tend to fall down on is not distributing those lessons learned broadly enough or frequently enough with the collective, the, the organization as a whole, because that does take additional time and an effort. And in a very busy practice, in a busy center where people do not have enough hours in the day, it's very difficult to get people to sit around and have those conversations as we should. But I do believe that's what's necessary because not everyone is going to sit and read the books and and analyze all the cases and try and, and learn from them. So we just have to share as often as we can, whether it's, in my view, this is my opinion, in the operating room, as time allows during the case, I think that the time, any time that's available should not be spent talking about a sporting event or, or even uh, family activities, but rather let's talk about what could go wrong in this case. Let's talk about all the possible complications and misadventures that could occur and have occurred in other patients and why we're doing what we're doing right now to prevent those things. I think opportunity exists in the operating room, in the clinic, on the wards, and we just have to seize those opportunities. So looking forward 75 to 100 years from now, what is one thing that you would want your future family, your great-grandchildren, to hear and remember about your career and experiences in military medicine? As I look back over the years, I am reminded of the words that so many senior commanders and general officers used when they presided at retirement ceremonies. And many of them, if not all of them, made a reference to the contributions of the family members, the spouse and children of the the person, the provider, the person being honored. And what I hope that my family remembers is that that was 100% true, that the any accomplishments that we had throughout this period of combat casualty care, almost 20 years now, uh, would not have been possible without that commitment and contributions of our family members. My own case, when I look at my wife and my daughter, they literally gave up seeing me for 
days that turned into cumulative weeks and months and even years over the course of the last 20 years because of the being in the operating room, being on the ICU or being employed. And I think that that's the one thing that I hope that they remember, that it was all done for the right reason to help care for America's sons and daughters who were injured. And that was the, that was the only reason that we were away. So I think that they do know that. I just hope that all of our families know that, that we, we signed up for this as individuals, but the family, the nuclear family or the family group, the extended family are the ones that really paid that price together for both good and bad. I think that borne out very well in, in military city USA, where our children often attend schools with the children of the wounded who recover here. In my case, my family actually got to know many of those who were wounded and recovering. And so they saw firsthand the fruits of our labors and they know it was real and they know how important it was. And I think that's a blessing in and of itself. We've been speaking with Colonel Retired Dr. Evan Renz on Wardock's podcast. Dr. Renz, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights with us. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardock's, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.